In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. My name is Father Matt. I'm one of the rectors here. We continue using Dr. Wilda Gaffney's Womanist Lectionary. Yep. And she, she really uh, let us have it this week. Our reading from Matthew, you have heard it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder, and all those who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. First Samuel, this is what the Lord of heavenly forces says, I'm going to punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel, how they attacked the Israelites as they came up from Egypt, so go. Attack the Amalekites, put everything that belongs to them under holy destruction. Spare no one. Kill men and women, children and infants, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. And then in Romans 2, so every single one of you who judges others is without any excuse. You condemn yourself when you judge another person because the one who is judging is doing the same things. In our gospel... We have the command to stay so far away from murder that you don't even tolerate anger, violent speech, or unreconciled relationships in the church. In 1 Samuel, we have a text where God commands the murder of babies. And when Saul decides to keep some animals alive, God gets grouchy, and Samuel judges him. Then in Romans 2, we have a text that says, don't judge others. Don't even be angry, because that's murder, but God gets to kill babies. Don't judge, unless you're judging Saul, then order the supersized McJudgment with a large fry and a shake. The kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance, unless you're Saul, who tries to repent and is rejected. That doesn't seem kind, bro. Thanks a lot, Gaffney. Wilda be wildin' this morning. Last week, Father Spencer uh, talked about a little bit about the violence in the Old Testament, asking the question, what is the Bible? And then talked for, uh, about aliens for 20 minutes or so, right? <laughs> That's how I remember it anyway. Um, so I want to return to, uh, not the alien chat, but um, discussing why God commands genocide. And by that, I'm just talking about holy destruction of everything. What Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount and how that relates to Romans 2. There's 44 sermons here. Here's one I'm not going to preach. The text in Romans 2, Paul's engaging in a rhetorical conversation against a common argument about how bad the Gentiles are. He presents a common trope in Romans 1, then responds and parodies it in Romans 2. So much to say here, including Romans 1 is an LGBTQ clobber text, but it's not the argument Paul's making, it's the thing he's parodying. The big point is the divisions between Jew and Gentiles, between lawkeeper and lawbreaker in Christ are done away with. All are subject to the kindness of the Lord. I'm not preaching on that today. In Matthew 5, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is pushing back against how religious leaders use the law to harm other people in the name of God. Jesus is taking full 
is, is addressing fully frontally religious and spiritual abuse in the Sermon on the Mount. So they keep the law, they don't murder, but they live violent, unreconciled, socially shaming and othering lives that kill the life that Jesus wants in the political economy of God. We're not preaching about that today. In 1 Samuel, we could talk about how the harem is actually non-for-profit war. You see, in the ancient world, the only way to get wealthier was to go out conquering other nations and take booty. Booty. Loot. Loot, Mallory. When I wrote Will W. Wilden, I had you saying that in my head when I wrote that. I just want you to know. So the way that nations got more wealth was by going to war. So when God says, destroy it all, we could talk about how that's limiting violence. We could ask the question, what's worse, a baby dying or a baby being carried off and having 45 years of sexual slavery? But we're not talking about that today. Today, we have to focus on First Sam, fam. When I talk to people about the reasons they walk away from God or lose their faith, near the top is the question, how can God command genocide, but I can't even call someone an asshat? That's the uh, rough translation of raka, the Aramaic. In fact, for many, hearing a priest say asshat bothers them more than God getting angry because Saul didn't correctly do a genocide. We have to address this text. We need to talk about it. Even if it means not talking about how war is a tool of mammon, and you all know how I like to talk about that, but we're not talking about that today. The good news today is that the scriptures are disturbing. They're wild and terrifying at times, confusing and confounding at other times. Jesus himself, the word of God, confounded and disoriented almost everyone he met. Let us receive our scriptures today, letting them disturb us and confront us in our violence and abuse. Let it do its work in our bodies. Be delivered from your evil today, beloved. This genocide text, this harem text, this holy destruction text has been handled uh, a lot of different ways, and I'm going to name them because I don't think they're very helpful ultimately, so gird up your ear holes. The first way this is handled is that we all deserve what happened to the Amalekites. How dare you be scandalized that God killed babies? Don't you know that every baby is under the wrath of God and deserves death? This goes hand in hand with some philosophies, permit me to nerd out for a moment, nominalism and voluntarism, also divine command theory. It gets 
started really by Augustine, and then Calvin just really rubber stamps it into our Western theology. And it says this, if God commands it, it's good. Things aren't good. Only what God commands is good. This has a problem, right? Because uh, it ends up making words like good meaningless. If the command to kill a baby is good, then how do I even cohere what good means? If God is love and God can command genocide, what is love? I think people lose their faith because they can no longer gaslight their conscience that somehow genocide is good. That killing babies is good. People are confronted because of this way of reading this text, confronted with, I either have to say genocide is good or walk away from God. Which is about like the question, do you want to kill a baby or do you want them to have a sexual slavery for the rest of their life? It's an awful choice. This also makes the rest of scriptures nonsensical. Like when Jesus teaches, if you know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good gifts to to you? It undoes the logic that scripture uses to describe who God is. So, we reject it. Also, this has led to so many justifications for genocide by Christians Millions and millions of people have died because of this way of reading the scriptures. We reject it. I denounce it in Jesus' name. The second way of dealing with this is that that Old Testament God is just a grumpy pants. You know? He's violent and capricious and unpredictable. But, but we, Christians, we follow Jesus. And he shows us a different God. One who is peaceful and patient and plays well with others. This involves some sort of throwing out the Old Testament canon as authoritative. Usually there's a bunch of anti-Semitism in here as well. The primitive tribal God of the Jews is not as good as the enlightened Christian God of love. Let us pray. Uh, We reject that. In Jesus' name, we denounce it. The third way of handling this is that these things never happened. You know, there's not much historical evidence that Israel ever did the genocides. Joshua, 1 Samuel. This approach questions the historicity of events recounted in places. And... As far as I can tell, there really isn't great historical evidence that any of this happened. But the problem with this approach is that, one, it assumes that Scripture is written to record history the way um, modern people think. And then, two, because we live with modern assumptions about truth and historicity, we lose confidence in the Scriptures. So it demands the Scriptures be something they aren't, and then throws them out based upon those assumptions. But in, in a biblical mind, in a Hebrew worldview, um, like court reporting history does not equal truth. 
Hebrews were way more concerned with meaning than they were with court reporting. So this approach has the same impact as number two. We, we get to throw out this stuff because it didn't happen, but also it's convenient, but it's, um, it's sub-Christian. I want to suggest another way then of holding on to this scripture as authoritative, as divinely inspired, one that embraces scriptures as they are given to us as Jesus treated them, but lets them be what they are instead of making them fit some straight jacket theology of what scripture must be. The good news today is that scripture is disturbing. It's wild and terrifying at times, disorienting and confusing at others. Jesus himself, the word of God, confounded and confused almost everyone he met. Let us receive our scriptures today, letting them disturb and confront our violence and abuse in our bodies. The, the violence and abuse that just was waiting to be unleashed. Just waiting to find some moral justification to be expressed. Be delivered from that evil today, beloved. The church fathers and mothers recognize the issues with these texts and argue that they were written to create issues for us. Chris Green sums it up like this. I cannot believe that God would require actions like these, the command to destroy the Amalekites, of anyone, no matter the circumstances, but I do not want to choose between God and the Bible. So I'm left to say that the stories are inspired by God, but not to tell us about something God once did and made his people do. They are not reports on an evil that we must accept as good because God required it. They are not even reports on something Israel wrongly believed. God had required. Instead, their stories, true in the ways that only God's stories can be, true like a measurement, like a cut, dividing the bone of the soul from the marrow of the spirit, laying bare the hearts of our hearts. This story, carefully read, read as it was intended to be read, is a story that calls into question not Saul, but Samuel. And in this way catches those of us who side with Samuel in our reading, exposing our complicity in what he does and what he fails to do. Green points out that categorical judgments to wipe out this or that group of people rarely, if ever, achieve their intended effects. Remember the flood? I'm going to kill everybody. That'll solve it. Does it? No. Nope. God's prior promise to Moses that he would utterly blot out the remembrance of the Amalekites from under heaven, taken literally, is impossibly at odds with God's other promises, given two verses later, that he will, quote, have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is in Exodus. Which is it, God? Utterly blot them out? Or keep fighting over and over and over? Our curiosity is raised by the text itself. We begin to wonder if there's more going on here than what we see. The text intends to push us deeper into God's story, to a deeper meaning, to see there's more going on here. So looking at 1 Samuel and the narrative, we see that chapter 15 fixes nothing. Nothing is fixed by chapter 15. Both Saul and Samuel disappear from the narrative after this. I'm going to quote Green again. 
Quote, for both Jews and Christians, Amalek personifies evil. And the strange stories about Amalek, including this in 1 Samuel, come to serve as a warning that evil must not be resisted in ways that are themselves evil. Samuel's penultimate exchange with Saul is a cautionary tale, one that warns us against the corrupting effects of religious zeal, but more importantly, also reminds us that we do, that we do to others in the name of God not only may not heal them, but actually may do irreparable harm. Instead of blotting out the name of Amalek forever, we may become Amalek, our violence generating a new cycle of failure and failed judgment. This reading that this text is meant to expose our hearts, call into question our assumptions, is how the church fathers intuited reading these texts. It scares modern people to death because we lose control of interpretation. That's really what this is about. Who's the gatekeeper that gets to tell you what this means and what's true and what isn't? This way of reading scripture, the priest doesn't get to tell you that. And it scares control freaks like you and me to death. But this reading is in fact an example of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus goes deeper under the law and exposes the way the law is used for unrighteousness. Jesus is doing the kind of exegesis in the Sermon on the Mount of the law that we're talking about here in 1 Samuel. This is how the church fathers read these texts. They were scandalized by the violence. They allowed the scandal to push them deeper into the story to see that these narratives were teaching us about how God solves conflict. They weren't teaching us about how God solves conflict or things we should model our behavior on. Rather, they took us deep into ourselves and our life together to reflect on the futility of our own violence to root out saying, asshat in our hearts. So let us say this. It's okay for Scripture to bother you. You don't have to leave your faith because it does. It was intended to do that. We don't have to treat every single text as teaching us explicit theology that we should model our lives on. But sometimes texts want to disturb and disorient us, make us question what we know and how we think we know it. Being troubled by genocide and a God who commands genocide is deeply Christian. You can't have, you don't have to choose between your conscience and Scripture. The good news today is that the Scriptures are disturbing. Wild and terrifying at times, confusing and confounding at others, Jesus himself, the word of God, is the same way. He reads the scriptures like that. Let us receive our scriptures today, letting them confront our violence and abuse that lives in our bodies just waiting to be unleashed, just waiting, give me a reason. Be delivered from that evil today, beloved. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.